On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one-up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein. On today's episode, my guest is Captain Brian. Brian is a 19-year veteran of the fire service, where he worked his way through the ranks from firefighter to lieutenant and now captain. Captain Brian, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'll turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. All right. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm glad to have this opportunity to uh, to speak on this a little bit. And I guess I'll just uh, start from the top here. My name is Brian. Uh, I got about 19 years total uh, in the fire service. I uh, started out as a volunteer, worked my way after four years of that. I've been a career ever since. Kind of my passion for the job kind of started growing uh, when I was little. Uh, I have memories of where my dad used to work. They had a fire brigade. And I remember seeing the trucks there, riding in a truck, in a parade, throwing candy out. And I just kind of had a passion for fire trucks there. Uh, we spent some time living with my aunt and uncle before we moved. And uh, he was a volunteer firefighter. I remember riding around in the truck sometimes on, when the afternoons got long and they didn't really have anything else to do with us kids. They just kind of take us for a ride. Um, and that just stuck with me. I uh, remember sometime in high school, I started seriously thinking about it for a career, uh, but knew I was going to go to college as well. 9-11 happened uh, when I was a senior in high school. Kind of knew I wanted to do something, but still plan on going to college. And then the uh, idea of becoming a volunteer down there was brought to me. I uh, realized what that was all about, and that's when I joined up. Um, so I spent the rest of my college career as a volunteer firefighter. Sort of thought that was going to be it. Didn't really plan on being career after that uh, until I did a couple interviews and realized I didn't want to wear a suit, didn't want to work nine to five. That's when I started applying to uh, departments full time. Ended up 
at one department. Uh, it was a smaller one for about three years. Uh, ultimately wanted to work where I'm working now, which is a, a larger metro department. Uh, it's where I grew up, um, and that's where I've been for, for 12 years now. Worked my way up through the ranks, started out as a firefighter, ended up going to paramedic school, spent a little bit of time as a fire instructor, and then uh, made lieutenant and got my first um, assignment at a single house. And this uh, this call that we're going to talk about today uh, happened uh, a couple years later. Um, it's actually right at a year ago now. Uh, I've been moved to a, a double house where we had an engine and a truck and a med unit there. I guess I'll just start talking about the uh, just that that day, a little bit about it. It was just uh, it was February, just a typical February day, cold, uh, pretty nice day though. Not particularly busy, uh, but we've been up and down the road a fair amount. Day had gone by pretty quick. Had a, uh, a relief driver filling in from another station. You know, that kind of plays into uh, a little bit later on um, where, you know, he didn't know the territory, hadn't, wasn't used to the particular apparatus, but, you know, kind of playing into the way he drives. He was methodical about it, getting us where we needed to go. But then for this particular call, it came out overnight. We were asleep when this came out. But, you know, as soon as we found out it was a structure fire company run, we uh, everybody sprung out of the bed, made it to the trucks, got dressed. And that's kind of where my recollection of just some of the details of the call for as you know tragic as this call turned out to be everything that could have gone right went right as far as the way the truck was driven the way our gear went on i mean there's just there's just no hitches which was a, a crazy thing but i'll step back a little bit we were dispatched to a uh reported working fire uh the police department was already on scene they actually rolled up and saw the smoke and flames coming out of this and this was a uh it was reported as a, a double wide trailer and uh, they didn't know that anybody was inside, but they said that there were cars outside. The first in station was, wasn't far away. They were already awake from a previous call that they had run. So they got there uh, pretty quickly and were told by neighbors that there was a family of five that lived inside the house. They hadn't seen them come out. Their cars are in the driveway. They're in there. Um, and that was said over the radio pretty quickly. So we kind of knew what we had going in. Uh, I was talking to the, the driver and the firefighter I had with me just telling them what the what our dispatch notes were saying, getting them prepared for what we were going to do. And then you know, we pulled up on scene, got there real quick, and just a real smooth ride. And that goes back to the driver. I said, you know, all day he'd just been kind of getting us to calls, but I'd never felt him drive a truck the way he did to this particular call. It's like he knew what was going on and he knew exactly. It's like he had driven down that road a thousand times before. He knew every turn, um, knew where every bump was going to be. So anyway, so we were dispatched to this. Uh, we got good word that there were people inside. The house was over 50% involved. Um, and they were pulling lines, getting ready to make a interior attack and with a you know, rescue at the forefront of their mind. Uh, so our ladder truck and our engine, we, I was on the engine. We pulled up around the same time. And I remember my captain giving the assignment that we were to back up the first end engine. Uh, they were doing fire attack, trying to make entry. And we were going to go get a search um, on their end while the truck handled the other end of the trailer. And I just remember getting off the rig, going over to the house and seeing just how much smoke and fire there was. Thinking, you know, there's there's no way, but we're going to still in get in and get a search. The truck crew uh, knelt down kind of beside where they were. They're getting ready to force entry. And I remember when that back door opened up, it just lit off on the backside of that house. And in my mind, I mean, there was, there was nobody back there. That's not where we needed to search. 
So we made our way around uh, to where the first in crew was. Uh, They're getting ready to make entry on the other side, which again was heavily involved with fire. And uh, I noticed two windows that didn't have fire showing in them. And I had to pick one to start my search in. I had a driver from the truck hand me a pipe pole and I went and cleared out one of the windows and uh, just noticed that that room was completely torched. That's not where I needed to go. So I went back to another window and uh, it had a, a window AC unit in it. So as soon as I pulled that out, you know, black smoke started pouring out that window. But one of the drivers came up with a roof ladder, um, kind of stuck the roof ladder in the window for me to climb up and realized I wasn't going to be able to fit. So I waved it off and just ended up stepping up on the uh, AC box, jumping in. And uh, as soon as my hand went through that window, felt a leg. And I just remember, you know, my first thought being, damn, they're in here. Not what I wanted to find just because of the extent of it. But, you know, I, I continued in, did our little VES, what we've practiced, look at the door, could see that it was closed because there wasn't any fire coming in on me. And then just made my way back in, was thinking about getting that first victim out. And when I swept across the bed, uh, that's when I felt the first child victim land there on the bed. Picked them up. There were people waiting right outside the window. I handed them out uh, the door or out the window uh, to the waiting rescuers. Went right back to where my hand had been before and found the other one, a sibling right there, and then grabbed them, put them out the window, looked back out, and there's no one outside. Right about that time, the the room started clearing out from the smoke. Fire attack was making good headway on the fire, and I had a chance to, to look around, and that's when I saw the oldest sibling on the ground and realized that the the leg that I felt at first was the mom. And she was kind of wedged between two two beds that were in that room. And, uh, you know, you could tell that she had kind of made a grab for the, for the kids and just kind of fallen, fallen through, succumbed to it. But, uh, you know, I had that second, there's no one out there waiting for another victim. I could see the extent of it. I knew that it, you know, it was too late for them. And then I remember my battalion chiefs, uh, just kind of poking through the window, asking what we got. And I told them, and I was just, you know, what do we do? Do we leave them in here? what do we do? And it was, uh, he said, yeah, I mean, we have to, there's nobody else out here. The med crews are, um, got their hands full right now. If they're, if you can confirm that they're, um, deceased, then yeah, we just need to leave them in there for investigators, which was, it was weird to hear and knew we were both kind of on the same page. It was just kind of hard to process that I had to leave them right there while everything else was going on. And honestly, one of the first thoughts through my head next anyway was just, all right, well, this this is it for me. I'd kind of thought that when I went through paramedic school, if I ever ran a pediatric arrest, that would be it. I'd just go ahead and drop my medic and move on with my career or move on with something else. But I guess you slowly kind of get, you run your first and then you're like, okay, all right, I can work through this. And then on and on and on, uh, you just do more and more. But in this situation, I remember that thought running through my head and, uh, you know, chief popped back up and I just kind of asked him, I was like, uh, can I get out of here? And he was like, yeah. And just kind of looked over my shoulder and I saw the door behind me was actually on fire and, uh, driver poked his head and he's like, Hey, you want to, you want to put that out? And just kind of nonchalantly, I was like, yeah, I guess I better. So put that out with a water can real quick, opened the door, met the fire attack crew right there and just saw the extent of the damage inside uh, what was the living room burnout bedroom right next to the one I was in burnt through the floor. I mean, it was just, I mean, the whole 
the whole trailer was torched. It's amazing that the mom was even to make it that far. Cause we determined she was in the back bedroom, made it to the front bedroom, trying to get to the kids. And that's where they all were. I guess from there, just, you know, I made my way out, my firefighter, you know, we made our way out down where the stairs used to be to the outside. Just kind of remember standing there in the front yard, staring at the house. And there's actually a picture that our PIO got. And it's just of me and my firefighter and I guess my driver. And we're just staring. I mean, I know you, if you could see our face, it was just very stoic, staring at the house, knowing nothing was going to happen. Just kind of like wondering what's next. And I guess, well, while we were standing there, I had my captain beside me as well. Guy comes up asking where his family was. And uh, fortunately, my captain had the uh, presence of mind to just point him over to the guy in the white helmet over there and got him out because I don't know what I would have said. I mean, there was nothing nothing I could say to him. And that was the best thing that could happen to me at the time was just move along. So I was very thankful that he was there to uh, to make that call. But as other crews came on scene, you know, we found out that the first two victims were already deceased as well, and they were in the back of our uh, med unit. Our district chief showed up, kind of asked what was going on. The battalion chief was just said, hey, I got to get these guys off the scene. We need more guys to handle this. These guys are leaving. And that's definitely a, a testament to our department and the way our department works. Uh, we do have a very, for lack of a better word, strong CISM team. And they had um, guys already rolling, planning to meet us at the the station, uh, as soon as all the crews that were actually involved, hands-on with the victims, you know, they wanted us to get off scene and get into that very, very quickly, uh, which I would say, I mean, that I could probably attribute that to saving my career because obviously that, that wasn't it for me. We were able to talk about it, process through it. It was a really good experience just talking with the crews in that debriefing, or I guess diffusing would be what it was, because we actually had a formal debriefing the next shift just to kind of help us all process through that. Um, But yeah, I mean, that was pretty much my experience for that day. Um, And then even just going home, I remember last thing I wanted to do was have a fire department t-shirt on my uniform, but I, you know, I got a shower at the station, got cleaned up. We went for our diffusing, you know, it took us a little bit later getting home. I remember calling my wife and uh, my middle son had a basketball game that morning. I said, Hey, I'm going to be a little late. We had a really bad call. Uh, we're all kind of getting together to talk about it. Of course she understood. You know, we had two, uh, members of our CSM team. They kind of guided along. They kind of start with their own short story of, uh, maybe calls that they've run ways talking about it has helped, but they're not pushy about it all, which was great. But it was one of those things we all sat in a circle and, you know, kind of took turns just starting clockwise, I guess, of, you know, what your experience was, what you're thinking, what you're feeling about it. And it was kind of at that moment, uh, it was myself and then the other lieutenant that was in there. We kind of glanced at each other and I, I knew that, you know, for everybody else in the room, they were looking at me, not only as, you know, the one of the lieutenants, but also as the one that was in that room with the victims when they were found. And I knew if, if I don't say anything, I could have easily kept quiet and I would have been fine. But if I kept quiet, everybody else was going to keep quiet. Because in my mind, if I didn't say anything, then nobody else would feel like they had anything to say just because I'd kept my mouth shut. But um, I remember just kind of just letting it all out, telling them what I was thinking, uh, even mentioning the part about me thinking that that was going to be it for me. Let them know what I saw, felt, all that stuff, and you know my thoughts going into it. And that just opened it up. And it was just really productive to hear everybody's thoughts and everybody else's reactions to it. And as weird as I felt 
you know, leaving those two victims inside the room, one of the other people in there just expressed gratitude to me for not handing them another dead kid or in there just like, please don't send any more out. So that kind of helped me cope with the idea of that because I was actually doing them a favor. Chief was definitely in the in the right mind recommending that as well. It's just a weird, it's even to talk about now, you know, I don't really feel like I have to explain myself why I left them in there, but it's just a weird idea because, you know, you get them out and then you give them the best chance until you realize they don't have a chance and there's no resources to even help them if they did just because of how fast everything happened. But anyway, so that was, that was very beneficial. And, you know, even since then people will pull aside and talk about how, how that helped them uh, get through that between that and then the formal diffusing um, the next week, or I'm sorry, the next shift that we had. Um, And to talk a little bit about that, we actually had some, I believe as a psychologist and then just some professionals there just kind of give us things to think about, things to talk with the crews about. And uh, I think the, the key takeaway that's kind of stuck with me, if I ever feel like, you know, if I were to ever think that I was, you know, messed up or something from the call, one of the people there just put it as, you know, whatever you're feeling, that's your body's natural reaction. Uh, I guess your abnormal, your normal reaction to a abnormal event. And it's just simple terms like that kind of, I mean, it helps you get through. Like if you're, if you're getting upset, like you're not broken, um, there's nothing wrong with you. You just, that's how your body's reacting. You just need to recognize that, recognize, uh, just some of those signals that maybe you need to take a step back and take a deep breath or take a time out, whatever, whatever you need to do to get past that moment, just to understand that, you know, it's not it for you. You're not, there's nothing wrong with you. So I guess that would be my, just a key takeaway from the, the CISM experience that we have. I mean, it's, it's, it's vital to us getting through all these things. You know, everybody, you know, when you see firefighters, you think, oh, they're going to save people. That's that's what they do. It's like, well, we do our best. And sometimes it doesn't work. But uh, I think looking back, I probably would have a little bit harder time with it if there was anything I could say that I feel like we could have done better. I remember pulling up to the call and just lines just coming off the trucks without a kink, just running off so smoothly our med crew was helping catch positive water on the hider. And it just seems like the threads just went on so smoothly as if they had practiced that exact line pull, those exact events before I remember putting my mask on and the way our masks work. I mean, they, they kind of fold in a little bit on the inside and I have to adjust it a little bit to get it around my face to make sure I have a seal. And then I'll pull the straps back and inevitably one of the straps will be twisted and none of that happened this time. My mask went on smooth. Everything went on straight. My hood didn't get hung up on anything when I was pulling it up over my mask. It was just, I'd like to say that I practice every day and I'm just that good, but I'm not. It was just the way it went. I mean, I couldn't go around, do a quick dress right now and I'll struggle with something. But that morning, that's that's not how it went. So uh, we always say that our crews are going to, we say they're good. We talk you know, trash to other crews about how good we are and, um, and our battalion and stuff like that. And, um, that just went to show that, you know, all our practice and everything that we had put in up to that point, you know, pays off regardless of the outcome. Um, everything went as smooth as it could have as far as our operations go. And unfortunately you just don't get the win all the time. Yeah. I'd imagine that's probably the, the hardest thing to wrap your head around is that you did everything right. And everything went off without a hitch and the outcome still wasn't what you were looking for. Right. Yeah. And it definitely does help to look back and say, it wasn't us. There's nothing we could have done better for them. 
we just got there late. I mean, that's, that's all it was. Even when PD pulled up on scene, I mean, that, I mean, the house was, it was going. So it's just, if they had a chance, I feel like we gave them that chance. So kind of helps you sleep at night. I think I've kind of wondered since then, or even that exact night, uh, you know, falling asleep, what was I going to see? What, you know, was I going to dream about it? Was I going to stay awake at night? And, uh, you know, I said, all right, well, um, kind of said a prayer and here we go. Let's try to go to sleep. And I slept, woke up, still thought about it. I mean, it was months and months that I thought about it every single day, but, um, just kind of had that, that peace that, uh, you know, the training that we had done before paid off, nothing we can do about it. And, uh, I feel like everybody else that I've talked to kind of has the same mentality about it. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, we have those calls in our careers and there's, and I think if you talk to anybody that's been doing this long enough, they all have that one call that they wish could have gone a different way or could have had Mm -hmm. a different outcome. And it's just, I think that's one of the toughest things about doing this job is, you know, you're programmed to take a situation and correct it, fix it, make it better. And when you can't do that, it hits us really hard. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's a good way to sum it up. Um, moving forward, you know, maybe something that could help somebody else out that has either dealt with something or is dealing with something like that. I mean, first of all, keep training. Sometimes you get tired of doing the same thing over and over again, but you know, I would train, we train, you know, make an entry and odd, I guess, odd heights of windows and stuff like that. How are you going to get in there? And we've always practiced kind of stepping on a halligan, stepping up into it because this window is about four feet high. Well, guess what? I'd already thrown my halligan. I knew I wouldn't have to force a door. I dropped it over on the other side and it wasn't there for me. Fortunately, I had a little HVAC box right there that I could jump on and jump through the window. But just those, I, I kind of wondered how I'd react in those situations. And I take a little bit of, I guess I get a little bit of peace from knowing that, you know, I reacted how I always hoped I would. Didn't freeze up. Everybody was doing what they needed to do. And, uh, you know, if you wonder how you're going to act in that stressful situation, you're you're going to act however you've trained. I know it's kind of a cliche saying, saying that you, you're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to fall to the level of your training. But I think that's true. And uh, we've seen it time and time again. Listening has to. Well, Brian, as we, as you wrap up, is, is there anything else that you want to add? I guess, I mean, if anybody's dealing with anything, you know, don't try to bottle it up. I love, again, I, I said it before, but I love the saying that whatever you're feeling, that's your body's normal response to an abnormal situation. And there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, you do have to deal with it, though. You can't bottle it up. And uh, you're dealing with it in a healthy way is key. I guess ever since that event, you know, it's just given me that kind of renewed uh, desire to keep training because um, I've seen it pay off. Um, and just kind of waiting for that next opportunity, you know, for either myself or my crew just to demonstrate wh- how that pays off and how their hard work, it was all worth it. Um, yeah. Biggest thing, just, just reach out. Um, there are so many resources available. If you do have a hard time with something again, you're not weak. If I can plug somebody on this show, I'll say, uh, I'm a, a regular contributor to a company called next Rung, Um, and they do, uh, scholarships for mental health training. I think they started out kind of as, Hey, we're going to do workouts and make t-shirts. And then, uh, the guy that started it, he, uh, decided to serve a higher purpose here. And, uh, you know, they raise money. Yeah. They have cool t-shirts and stuff, but they've helped a lot of people. That's usually it's peer counselors or professional counselors, whatever you think you need, but they're there non-judgmental 
it's just a it's a it's a great resource because it's it's other firefighters it's people who know how your brain works even if you think your brain is special it's not there's other people that are thinking and feeling the same way or have felt that way before and have seen through to the other side and can still get out and grow in their careers and uh, just have a huge impact on the community and uh just the fire service in general. I'm glad you brought that up because Blake's going to be a guest on the podcast in the next okay. couple of weeks. So that's a good lead in for him. Yeah. But he does, he does a great job with Next Rung and I'm excited to have yeah. him on. Yeah, he really does. So, Well, Brian, thanks for taking some time and, and sharing this, this incredible story. Um, and, you know, my heart breaks for you as, as I hear it. I, I, I know you know, being in your position, the level of frustration you must have felt that day. But I think it's important to, to share these stories and talk about them, to talk about how you got through them, and maybe that'll help somebody else behind you. Anytime you want to come back and share another story, you're, you're always welcome on the podcast. I'd love to have you. And yep. uh, otherwise, you know, thank you for being here. Yeah, I appreciate it. Hopefully, uh, if I come back next time, I can share a win with you. So <laughs> Wins are always good to have. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.